This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The hosts are not trained professionals, and their opinions come solely from personal experience. In this episode, we discuss fictional depictions of trauma and violence that may not be suitable for all audiences. Please take care of yourselves. Specific content warnings for each episode can be found in the show notes. Events in the media are discussed in approximate order of escalation. This episode contains spoilers. we are talking about Destiny, third book in the first Rhapsody trilogy. In this book, Rhapsody overcomes hardships, finds her mission in the first part of her life, and perseveres against all odds. Hello there. Do you like real-life historical tales? If so, have I got the perfect podcast for you. My name is Alice. And I host the Backtracker History Show. Based in the UK, this self-confessed geek takes you for a stroll down memory lane and shares stories and interesting nuggets of information that has been discovered along the way. From tales of tragedy and sadness to epic stories of human courage or creativity, there are many people in history who have made their mark, however small. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And remember to leave a rating, or review if you can. If you want to find out more, you can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at BacktrackerUK with a capital V, capital T, and a capital UK. But until then, take care guys, and look after each other. I'm Nicole. And I'm Robin. And this fortnight on Books That Burn, we are discussing Destiny, Child of the Sky. Uh, I really like the subtitles on all of these books. Um, I'm enjoying that. Uh, For our factions, we have Meridian, Ash, Rhapsody, Ahmed, Grunthor, Loron, Tristan Stewart, The Fedor, um, we mention the Rakshas, mm-hmm. then we have Oleandra, Anwin, and Kadir. Oh, and um, Constantine. Yes. For our first topic, we have Kadir. Um, we have the death of Kadir. And <laughs> um, so I know it's in the show notes, but... Um, trigger warning for body horror we're going to mention the way that he died it is very gruesome if you don't want to hear that skip forward about 30 seconds um he is killed while being tortured for information and he is killed by turning him inside out like his skin inside out and his bones inside Mm -hmm. out um not gonna describe that again. That way anybody who skipped forward can be good now. Um, his death is very physically traumatizing. 
he does die fairly quickly, but he's being asked for information and there's enough time in his death for him to be asked for it and for him to say, I can't tell you, I can't tell you. And then he's asked again and then he's told he can't tell them. And that to me makes it feel like this probably took minutes. Like it's several paragraphs yeah. where this is happening. Um, and it, it was a big enough thing that his death fits onto a couple of pages. But the way that he died is getting this spotlight. Um, we have some thoughts about this that are mostly related to who killed him and why and what this makes us think about that other character. But if you want to give, if you have any more thoughts about Kadir specifically, um, um, this would be the time for that. Not really. Kadir is... He's a really yeah. terrible person who then dies horribly. So it it makes this weird thing as a reader where you're like, oh, good, he's dead. Oh, no, not that way. <laughs> like, you, you, either go, you either go, oh, good, he's dead. Oh, no, that means the other person had to do it. Or it's a, oh, good, he's dead. I'm glad the punishment fit the crime. It's one of the two. And you as a reader are probably going to fall on one of the two. Yeah. Uh, if you have some other take, please let us know. Yes. We'd be interested. Um. If you identify with Kadir and are sad, though, that's not super then, great. But and honestly, if honestly, we'd be kind of surprised that this is a podcast you've decided to listen to. This is to. also true. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but it, it does say. So we actually wanted to real quick as a kind of preface for what we're going to talk about here too that we thought was interesting. So there's there's not a lot to say about Kadir's death. It was brutal. It was traumatizing. It was probably traumatizing to witness, honestly. I don't even want to say it was traumatizing oh, to absolutely. go through because he died too quickly to really kind of be aware of what was happening for very long. I would say that having the last several minutes of your life be that bad is traumatizing for the amount of time that you're alive. Yes. And yes. this is a world with an afterlife True. of some kind. So, um,. I do not want I, I don't to want to say minimize. that it was not traumatizing because yeah. he died too quickly, but I want to say is that he didn't live okay. after this. There was no there right. was no extended period of time for him to exist while traumatized. Because this was his okay. death. <laughs> uh right. the but the but as far as witnessing it, you're witnessing someone being quite literally turned inside out. And that's a lot. Even even for the world that this exists in, that's pretty brutal. And 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 this was not a, you know, a, a <laughs> this was definitely not a jury of his peers decided on punishment. You know, this was there was no trial, there was no conviction, there was no anything. It was just, all right, you need to be taken down. I am the executioner, and here is how you will die. And there's an element of revenge yeah, absolutely. Um, involved because he had just killed someone who was important to the person who kills him. And so there's definitely some revenge involved. And like he thought he was he was killing him to get his job. And then it turns out he didn't even successfully get that person's job, which is part of what even let him be killed. Um, uh, 
And so as for the person who kills him, um, I'm going to go ahead and say that is Ash. And it makes us think some interesting things about Ash if he's willing to kill someone in this very gruesome way. Yeah. Uh, you wanted to explain D&D alignments so that the rest of our discussion will <laughs> yeah, make sense. Yeah, so we're going to give a very incredibly simplistic view of the D&D alignment chart. Uh, it just This is not a concept in the book. This is us putting our own concepts from our understanding of things into the book. So there are multiple ways to look at D&D alignments and multiple ways to argue them. This is the incredibly pared down, stripped down, bare bones of what it is. And then you can argue semantics all you want. So there are two axes. There is good versus evil, or good neutral to evil. I don't want to say versus, good to evil on a sliding scale. And then there is law to chaos on a sliding scale. And both scales have neutral in the middle. Generally, bare bones, stripped down speaking. People on the good end of that that axis care about benefiting others. They care specifically if other people are hurt. They are upset when other people are upset. They actively try to better the lives of people, and not just people they know. People they don't know, people they will never meet, ever. Not even once. On the other sliding end of that spectrum, the people who, uh, characters who are more evil-aligned, actively like causing harm. They are excited or happy or interested if something or someone is being injured or hurt. Uh, And now it's important to note that individual actions can kind of get put on a D&D alignment chart also, but doing an action does not like lock your alignment forever. Especially if you ever try and apply alignment charts to, like, the real world. Nobody is one thing. Everybody does different things. But generally speaking, if a character delights in causing pain or harm, they're more on the evil end. If they delight in causing beneficial or happiness to other people, they're more on the good aligned side. And specifically people that are not important to them. Anybody can care about their friends. Uh, On the other axes... From law versus chaos, again, very, very loosely speaking, law is when a character acts in a way that upholds and helps to keep codified the social or legal structures in place in their society. Chaos is when they don't really care about outside existing structures, they only care about their own internal structures. So a chaotic character might do something that is incredibly illegal, but still is keeping to their own personal moral code. It doesn't make them immoral. It means that they don't care about these social structures around them as much as they do about their own internal structures. And the same way where like if someone is very if someone is more on the law end of the of the axes, it does not mean that they follow every rule, (laughs) it means that they follow these social structures. So if something is socially, if something fits in our social structure to ignore a specific law, like in our real world, like jaywalking would be an example, if it would be out of place in your community to not jaywalk, 
to actually go across down the street and wait for the crosswalk, that's you following something that is a kind of against your community, which is kind of a weird example. <laughs> but my point is that it's not, yeah, it's not like, that you follow every rule. It's that you follow these social structures, which can also include legal laws around you. And like in, in D&D, that's why you'll often have um, lawful alignments like mm-hmm. paladins. Because they're following um, the structure laid out by their god or goddess. Yeah. Right. You'll often have, have paladins being like this. You can either play a paladin as this law is terrible and I can't follow it. Or I have to follow the law and that messes with them trying to be good. Like you can get some interesting things there. So as it relates to this book specifically... Ash, so I tend to default to feeling like all the characters are good and then something happens like Ash killing someone in this way and I'm like, oh, whoops, nope, I was wrong. Like, that's that's on me. I was wrong. Um, I feel like Ash ends up being true neutral, which is being in the middle of both those axes by dint of going wildly on either side, like doing stuff that's super good and stuff that's super evil. But, like, he does it because he's, like, following his lawful neutral parent, Lauren, yeah. and also, like, helping and following chaotic good <laughs> Rhapsody. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Such just, ah. She's just. Rhapsody is a really like, good example really of chaotic good. if someone really wants to argue good. for her being neutral good, no, I'll hear I, it. But, like, she feels she real super. I don't think I'll agree with you, but I'll hear it. <laughs> I I would actually agree. She is super chaotic good. She has a strict, incredibly strong internal code of ethics and structures that make up her decisions. And she will yell in the face of anybody who tells her, but that's not how we do things here. She's like, I do not care. This will do more good in the world and your whatever it is is causing harm. So I will go directly against everything that this society holds dear if it will help somebody. <laughs> she is incredibly chaotic yeah. good. Uh and and yeah. and Lauren, I actually would argue that Lauren I don't know whether I'm more I actually honestly could make I I would like to make an argument for Lauren being neutral evil. Okay, I'll, yeah, I put lawful neutral. Well, that's that's the question. So is he making decisions because he enjoys the pain that they cause? Because I don't, I don't even know that he's necessarily lawful because he, he's a lawmaker. Right. But. Well, one of the classic lawful evil tropes is like lawyer who uses the law to hurt Right, but he's not even using that. He's He's just straight up lying. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he is lying so that he can hurt people when it's not even necessary. I, w- I, would, I would argue that he is more of a neutral evil character. I think he uses social rules and conventions when they're convenient and uses his own code when it's convenient and yeah. actively, okay, intentionally take- causes harm and distress to people while he can, when he can watch. Okay. So we've got uh, Ash then in the yeah. middle- with someone who's neutral, following someone who's neutral evil and following someone who's chaotic good. Um, And yeah, and that's what can lead to things like, I need to get information from this person to stop this really terrible thing. 
but I also want to kill them because they killed my father, but I am going over the top and killing them in a horrible way to try and get this information. Just like, you didn't have to do it that way. And uh, it's, it's such... Like, in terms of the effect on the reader, I was like, this has changed how I think about Ash because he did this. This was, it was horrifying to read. Like, I mean, the, these books usually have a lot of care, but, like, the the only, and we're going to talk about care in the wrap-up, but, like, to me, most of the care was that this is only a couple of pages. Yeah, well, and I think that this was... <sighs> I think that this this is partly like the, to the brevity was highlight how much Ash is not just one thing. I think that that you could read it from that perspective where yeah, sure, there's um sure, like there's there's other things that could have happened, but but Ash is <laughs> spoiler alert, no, I'm just kidding. Ash is uh Ash is not fully human. He's half human and half dragon. And there's there's also something to be said where, like, dragon conventions and dragon morality, and he is raised by his dragon parent, aren't necessarily the same as human. And so while it, it might seem to us as human readers, you can make the argument that to us as human readers, the punishment does not fit the crime, he's not the right executioner, etc., he might literally have other different, like, I mean, especially with, you know, the we just classified his, his father as potentially neutral evil. <laughs> like, uh, he, he might literally have a, a different set of how to make that determination in his head. Which doesn't square. And even I think some of the tension in trying to figure out how to categorize Loran is because he is... He's, in, he's in literally inhuman. Part- yeah. He, yeah, he's literally inhuman, and um, he not only that, when we first meet him, he felt very lawful neutral to me, because, like, his more human side is in play, and then by the time it's book three, it it's not as much, like, very specifically, and I think that maybe is causing some of the difficulty in figuring out what his alignment might be. Um, yeah, um... That's all I have for this. Poor Catter. Like, even when it's his segment, we don't spend most of the time talking about him because he's evil and not super interesting and not super likable, rather. Uh, And then dead. On to Rhapsody and Ash for Gaslighting. So there's a very major thing, um, this, like, magically enhanced gaslighting that happens to Rhapsody. Uh, the Fedor tells Rhapsody that she, in the previous book, had sex with the Rakshas when she thought it was Ash. And this convinces her that she's pregnant with the demon's child, And part of what makes this so terrible and insidious is that the more she thinks it's real, the more the demon can control her. And that leverages her fear into actual possession. Not, like, she's not actually pregnant with a demon child. 
but the but demon- literally that vine we saw from book two and joe is growing in her yeah with the more belief she has yep and so she's stressing out about it like four months yeah um and <laughs> like it's the resolution is good but like oh this book this book spends so long with people not giving each other information and not talking to each other and i just i know it's a fantasy setting and i'm like but <laughs> but like someone travels across the country to give someone information and then they're not there because it took several weeks to travel and they left <laughs> like yeah there's there's kind of a lot of that and there's never been a book that made me want to scream i wish they had magical cell phones just so over and over (laughs) i was like please develop long distance communication please please like yay you've got a mail train that goes around the country and it takes two weeks to make this circuit cool in this (laughs) like i'm glad you have that yeah. Can you get can you get magical communication, please? Because this is stressing me out. So anyway, I I will say that in this uh, in this series, when they can't communicate, it's not because they're in the same place and just don't want to talk about it. No, they literally right. just can't get a hold of each other. Right. Like there ends up being a little bit of you're here and I don't want to talk to you. That is minimal. That is minimal, but it's not the plot. <laughs> Right, uh, which which is which is important because like you know that's that's a very there's there's no cop out because I need them to not talk together for plot reasons. It's right. literally here's there's an actual reason that they can't connect. All this to say, it better. means that the gaslighting that happened um, has a a, a long term effect. Like for months to the point that Rhapsody is ready to die rather than give birth to a demon child, especially when based on some prophecy stuff, she thinks that if she has this child, it will kill her. So she's looking at death now or death and making a demon baby. So like it just it's really terrible. Um, so that's, that's the, one of the big ways that Rhapsody is gaslit by the Fedor. The other half of our topic, good old Lauren, lying to people, (laughs) being neutral evil all over the place. Lauren lies to Ash and Rhapsody. And I, I think maybe, I don't know, it feels like Rhapsody had had Lauren lying to her so much and she's so kind of like off kilter because of all this that that set her up to not trust herself, not trust her memory and think that maybe she had actually slept with the Rakshas. Um, Maybe because she's had so much of like people who are supposed to be on her side lying to her like Lauren. No, there's definitely like a ton of precedent, even just what we see on screen with Rhapsody with people trying to lie to her to make her do what they want her to do mm-hmm. that you know the Rakshos comes in and has like magical suggestion behind the lie and you know she's she's so much more I don't want to fin- say more vulnerable to that than other people but she's definitely like incredibly 
incredibly susceptible to it just because of other things that have happened to her and other ways that she's been treated. Yeah, it was the fedora lying about something the Rakshas did, but yes, like, I I think she is more vulnerable to that than she might have been, like, midway through book one. Not that other people, but then that she might have been otherwise. Right. More vulnerable than herself in an earlier point. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also since her magic, a lot of it relies on telling the truth. It means that people Mm -hmm. have an incentive to convincingly lie to her because if they get her to repeat it, then it can become true. Yeah, that is another thing. Her her powers as a namer are so much stronger and and it's it's not necessarily, by the way, if she is lying. It is partly that by telling the actual absolute truth, her powers gain power. Okay. The more true something is, the more powerful her kind of enforcing it or shaping it is, the more her ability to shape it is powerful. But also, the more that... And she kind of talks about this. I I think it's in... I don't remember if it's in book one or two now. But she kind of talks about, like, the more true things that she knows about something, the more she can shape it. And so other people lying to her actually do dilute her her capabilities right and and her but her capabilities are diluted more if she is lying or she knows it a lie than if they just lie to her and hide it from her yeah but it's definitely it's definitely one of those situations where magically and morally if somebody lies to her and she finds out she's not going to run around saying what they want her to say and so they're literally just like oh well to keep our pocket pet pet magical namer we're just gonna lie to her all the time so yeah. that she can't out us for how terrible we are. And Lauron does this so much. Like, he does this he, the entire time. It's all he, he does. He lies to Ash. He lies to Rhapsody. He, like, selectively gives information. Like, there's this bit where, like, he's trying to help, but he uses a lie to help. do it. <laughs> like, he... he yeah. He lies in a way that tells Ahmed what he did, but the lie says that Rhapsody said something she didn't, which means mm-hmm. Ahmed's like, I don't know what this nonsense is, but mm-hmm. I I don't know why he would do this, but okay, he's making someone think that we are weak and vulnerable right now. I guess I'd better not be weak and vulnerable sure glad he didn't like do this without telling me so i can actually arm up right like uh ahmed is so pragmatic yeah it's like well this was some uh terrible stuff but well it has happened now and we must proceed um and then i do want to like we're saying that he it's hard to list some specific ample examples of him lying to ash because so many of them are just major major spoilers but please know lauren lies to ash all the time and untangling exactly what he said or didn't say like i would need a diagram to track all the times that he lied to ash to try to get him to do something you've read this book more than i have it would probably be easier for us to go through the series and write down all the times he didn't lie and just count how many times he talks and subtract (laughs) I can't, um, I cannot, cannot 
think of a single in-book, quote-unquote, on-screen thing that he flat-out says that we don't find out is complete BS later. Oh my goodness. Or just twisted for his own agenda and technically not wrong, but also, like, super inaccurate. Like, just... I, I, I mean, there's things that we hear about that other people heard from Lauren that are actually true, but nothing we actually see him say is accurate to anybody. Ah, like, oh, the bit where he sends Rhapsody into danger and he's like, no, 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 everybody dresses like this. And he doesn't tell yeah. her yeah. everybody dresses like this because everybody in that building is a... um a sex worker who is not there of their own free will because they are slaves. Yes. And he and, doesn't and tell also, her that. And he's and making her dress like that. And it puts her in danger. I wouldn't even say everyone in there is a sex worker. Everyone in there is a, a, a slave who is being raped. Yeah. Yeah. These aren't, these are not consensual people who have chosen a lifestyle. These are people who were kidnapped or captured somehow, or sold, and they aren't gladiators. Yeah. So they're rape victims. Just no, on you're call right. For Absolutely, the I appreciate that correction. I was trying to avoid saying that word, and I went too far the <laughs> nope. other way. Yeah. yeah no, they um, are. That is explicitly what they are. And Lauren could have told Rhapsody, could have informed her of what she was getting into. And honestly, Rhapsody probably would have said yes anyway. Yeah, because, because we're if it'll talk save about a demon child. Time. Yeah, that's our next topic. But but regardless, this was not informed consent to what she mm -hmm. was doing. And she could have been raped or killed with no repercussions. Yeah. And he did, he just didn't bother cuz he just wanted her to do the thing. And he told her she'd have backup. And then yeah, found out a reason why lie. he couldn't send the backup. And then was and like... And the backup was sitting there like, um, we can go. <laughs> and he was like, I don't trust you anymore. I'm not sending you. And, well, actually the backup didn't know they were about to backup, but they were ready. But yeah. They he, were he, very ready. Yes. Yeah. And he doesn't send them. And then he's like, oh, you know, she lived. Guess it's cool. It's all cool <laughs> yeah. and good. Everything is fine. <sighs> Yeah. So, Lauren, yeah, the more we talk about this, the more I'm like, oh, you're right. He is neutral evil. My <laughs> goodness. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, making sure that we're talking about it as the author doing all this stuff, the way that it's set up, like, there's this weird thing where, like, this character, like, Lauren is doing some really, really terrible things. And the author makes sure that things do end up okay and are fine, but it could very easily have gone very have, badly yeah. if the author were trying to hurt these characters more in a way that, like, a lot of classic fantasy does. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, this whole series is very much, I believe, kind of a deconstruction on a lot of those incredibly harmful, yep. like, tropey ish like harmful trope fantasy pieces that kind of get reused a lot yeah uh it, it's very much a deconstruction of i'm just i'm just gonna list several things it's kind of a deconstruction it's a deconstruction of the narrative of 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 rape or sex as a plot point 
Uh-huh. It's explicitly a, hey, this could have happened, and the answer was, no, we didn't need that. It's right. It's very much a deconstruction of the concept of the character who can just shape reality. Mm-hmm. Rhapsody is a namer. She creates and makes things true and names them true as they are. And she can call them what they are and then say, and now you will change. And they do. But she's not walking around, like, molding reality as she pleases. Yeah. And and she's a singer. She's a, she's a bard. She's a namer. Like, her powers don't... Her powers don't have like a like a a recharge cost. <laughs> she just plays her instrument and sings and speaks. So so it's not it's not that she isn't shaping reality because something something draining her. Like no, uh-huh. she just that's just not, it's what not what she's she trying to do. Does. Yeah, yeah. Like there's but so many places. There's so many where things book, like that. Yeah, like it comes up to the edge of like, hey, if this were written by somebody else, this could have gone really dark really fast. And that's part of why um, our first topic with Cadier, that's part of why it was so stressful is because that is one of the most gruesome things in this book. Yes. And we're talking about these other topics as more severe um, because of how much they permeate the text. Mm-hmm. But... Or they're higher up on our, like, loose well, ranking of Kadir, how we proceed through an episode. Kadir but... is our minor character, so... Yeah. Unless we explicitly decide to put him later, he is going to be kind of first in our order of escalation anyway, because he's a minor character. He's not on every page. But even still, we didn't spend a very long time with his stuff. I'll try and save yeah. some of this for the wrap-up. Sorry. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm, I'm just... <laughs> Thinking about how Lauron, if things had gone the way Lauron was trying to make them go, this would have been terrible to read. It would have been just really, really awful. But instead, what we have is things keep generally ending up okay for most of the characters. Mm -hmm. And a lot of bad things either almost happen or... They happen, but aren't quite as bad as they as a similar event would be in another book. Mm-hmm. And Lauron lies all the time. He lies all the time. Just so much. Just all the lying. For Rhapsody and Boundaries, she needs to get some. She needs to get some. <laughs> Please, she, soon, so sometime, ever. Here's the thing with Rhapsody and Boundaries. Rhapsody is explicitly consenting to a lot of things. She does not have, other than Lauron, uh-huh. she doesn't have, well, in the Rakshas, but that's a little bit different. She doesn't have people that are intentionally trying to cross boundaries that she sets up. The problem is that she keeps saying that the boundary is whatever will be cause her the most pain if it'll avoid other people pain which is i we we did put this in the content warning but we are like we are looking at this from a emotional and i would argue physical magical Uh self-harm point of view she is not setting up 
anything healthy for herself. She looks at other people suffering and literally looks at every single person in her life and says, I'll take the pain because I don't want you to suffer. So I'm just going to hurt myself so that you'll feel better. And she has a couple of people, not all in book three, but she has a couple of people who look at her and say, no, this is mine. I will deal with me and myself and my pain. Actually, while Joe was still alive, that was a major point of contention between Joe and Rhapsody because Joe looked at her and said, this is my pain and my life and I will deal with it now that you're showing me how to deal with it, but you don't get to take this from me. And there's, there's, there's in plot point reasons for her to do a lot of the pain taking that she does but the author also wrote that plot and made this be the thing yes. that she's doing over and over. Yes. Um, she is she is incredibly I would I would say that she she was written to be incredibly It feels like she sees a series of trolley problems and is like or I could get run over by the trolley. Yeah. No, that's literally it. She looks at a trolley problem and on one hand she has like a certain person being hurt and on the other hand she has like not that person being hurt but also like not a good solution and then she goes what if i just real quick built a third track and switched the trolley over to it and laid on it and it's like hey <laughs> hey first off we could just stop the trolley yeah and she's like but then nothing because that conversation doesn't happen <laughs> Right. Like, literally, it's, hey, we could just turn off the trolley. We could. We have the ability. If other people would, like, other people are lying to her and telling, well, Lauren is lying to her and telling her, we can't stop the trolley. And she's like, okay, fine. Well, I'll just get run over instead. But instead. Over and over. Instead, if people would quit lying to her, there's an option to stop the trolley. Most of the time, yeah. Most of the time. Like, not every time, but a lot of the time there is. There's this option if people would just be, like, upfront with the actual problem that's going on. And that's not Rhapsody's fault. <laughs> but also, if you're looking at a trolley that is going to kill, not, not even kill, if you're looking at a trolley that is going to just cause someone some major pain and they'll probably live, and your reaction is, I might die, so let me just real quick take their place. <laughs> Like, that's not better. That's not helpful. That's yeah. just swapping... It's just swapping victims. And you're swapping for a victim who... This isn't... Like, metaphorically, functionally, in the book speaking, this isn't your pain. This isn't your experience. And so, in a very real, magical, tangible way, it's taking away somebody else's agency sometimes. Uh-huh. It's taking away their ability to deal with their own emotions and to deal with their own traumas and to deal with their own past. And it's, and I mean, you know, this is, this is a story where no, Rhapsody doesn't have like other very, very bad, like magical side effects from taking on pain that has nothing to do with her psyche and her body and her, like she doesn't have like, you know, a, a reaction to it not being her own emotions or anything. But, you know, that could have been a very magical possibility. It's totally possible that, like, somebody can handle something because they've already gone through it and their brain didn't die already. But there's no guarantee that hers wouldn't. And one of the things, like, there, there's two 
main topics that we have on here, uh, mm-hmm. two main sub things. One is that she becomes, she learns a way to heal that involves her taking the injury onto her body and then healing it. That we don't, we don't delve into that a ton. So I don't know if exactly if that's the mechanic that's happening, but that's how mm-hmm. it looks at least. And it clearly does hurt her. And there's a bit where she heals Ash in this manner. And his reaction is, wait, you took that on. You didn't know how severe that injury was. And she's like, well, I'm alive. So it is clearly fine. And he's like, no, Rhapsody, no. What do you know? But like, there's nothing (laughs) else he can do because he she already took the injury and is almost completely healed by the time he realizes that that's what happened because like he was asleep yeah so, like, like he was literally him, out right without consulting him she's like oh you're in pain i can be in pain and then fix it for you and she does that and then also later on uh actually i don't know remember where they are in relation to each other in the text at some other point in this book <laughs> there's a bit where for seven years she's taking the pain of 10 other people after someone told her, we have the special magical way for you to take the pain for two of them, because that's all a person can stand. And she's like, okay, here's my two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah. Here's all of them. And like, it's just like this really, like the scene is really cool. Like, from yeah, the it's written very, thing, very well. It's written super well because she's she's like, she says the names and then she says like each name and the person's like, wait, stop. Why are you lighting things? And she's like, here's why I'm lighting things. Fourth name. And I need to do it for this reason. Fifth name. And you're, you know, I understand you're trying to stop me. Sixth name. Like it's, it's kind of like. It's a very dramatic, very heroic, very, very self-sacrificial scene. (laughs) Yes. But yeah, I. The thing that I keep coming back to with that, I think, I keep thinking this, is like, so every single one of those people is specifically, explicitly half-demon. Mm-hmm. Which is why they need to do the painful thing to them to try and get the demon right. out. It's But also, you can make an argument that... By being genetically inheritance-wise and magically half-demon, their bodies can handle being half-demon. Now, society doesn't like that they're going to grow up to be half-demon. And, you know, there's, like, there's plot-related reasons for why they don't want the demon race to have children. But also, Rhapsody doesn't have anything that would let her handle that essence at all. There's no plot justification for it. There's no reason. That could have literally just killed her. Like, the first one could have just killed her because she just doesn't have those genetics. Like, that could have just happened. It's it's just not, like... <laughs> it It's so... It just... All of it just screams like... Uh, what's the, what's the, when you're putting other people before yourself, but it's in a very, it's, it's a very negative, very bad way. What's the word for that? Self-sacrificial? No. Self-sacrificial isn't necessarily negative. 
Um, when it's toxic, when it's a codependency thing. I don't remember the word for it. Okay. If I think of it, I'll let you know. Okay. But but it's but it's that. It's using that for self-harm is what it is. Yeah. It doesn't she's... mean she doesn't care. <laughs> she cares a lot, but also... She cares a lot, and she is rigorously determined to increase the number of people that she cares about and takes responsibility for. Yeah. Uh, I believe in the previous episodes we talked about how she keeps adopting people, um, like like Joe. Um, and once she thinks someone is her responsibility... She's she decided tr- that that means they can't be in pain ever because she'll be in pain instead. Right. And I think for the podcast, at least not anytime soon, we're not we're not going to read the rest of the series because there's six more books. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know if we're going to see her have more growth on this later. I feel like some of the stuff that happened at the very end where she like accepts that she can't fix a certain person whose back was broken and she accepts that she can't keep all these people from dying like i feel like that was a growth bit that maybe kind of got her out of some of this Mm -hmm. but i i don't know because there after that we don't because it's the end of the book we don't have more things that happen where she could have just whisked someone's pain away Mm -hmm. so for her sake i hope that that stuff at the end marked a change where she stops doing this but like there's so much of it in here yeah um also should mention like one of the people whose pain she took for 10 years was almost an adult he's 17 yeah um and she didn't ask him nope she just took it and when she talks to him about it he is he's like upset yeah uh he he's upset that he was hurt the one time before she took it away but then is also upset that she just decided to do this i don't know it's there's a lot of really complicated stuff with that character that Mm -hmm. we we are not here to break down the plot for you and so we're not really going to talk about him but there's there's a lot uh there is talk to you about him a lot if you want uh well that's probably what'll happen uh in the epilogue for this episode that's fair is that we will talk about Constantine, at least somewhat hello there Do you like real-life historical tales? If so, have I got the perfect podcast for you. My name is Alice, and I host the Backtracker History Show. Based in the UK, this self-confessed geek takes you for a stroll down memory lane and shares stories and interesting nuggets of information that has been discovered along the way. From tales of tragedy and sadness to epic stories of human courage or creativity, There are many people in history who have made their mark, however small. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And remember to leave 
a rating or review if you can. If you want to find out more, you can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at BacktrackerUK with a capital V, capital T and a capital UK. But until then, take care guys and look after each other. to the wrap-up and ratings. For the gratuity rating for death, what are you thinking? Uh, I mean, oh, this is, it's either severe or torture porn. I feel like this one might be torture porn. It doesn't last super long. My only hesitation would be, I don't know if we're meant to enjoy it or not. But I don't think we are. I think the perpetrator is. Is definitely, yeah. Because it's the death of a fairly evil character. Yeah, um, but it being the death of an evil character is kind of the only... If this was happening to a protag, it would be torture porn. Right. So I think, yeah, this is torture porn. We don't have that super often, but it's definitely what this is. Um, it is one of the most... Ex- it is not... It's up there for the most explicit scene in this entire series. Yeah. There aren't very many of them, but this is one of them. Yeah. For sure. For the gaslighting, that's severe. Yeah, and I think I think it's made more se- severe from the magical elements at play. Mhm. Uh so you had kind of we had kind of talked about rewording this before we started recording, but like there's a very real element to magically believing or calling something into existence. And so when the threat of when gaslighting creates a physical, actual, magical, realistic threat, it doesn't make the things that they're saying true, but it does make it can affect reality and not just someone's perception of it. Yeah. Which is the thing that they're being told is real wasn't real, but it's making a differently bad thing real. (laughs) Be real. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Boundaries. Oh, buddy. Severe. It's either severe. The only thing that saves it from being torture porn is that we don't we don't watch it happen most of the time. That's the only thing that saves that from. Yeah, so it is severe. I actually... Oh, do you think it is? This is kind of a weird one, because I almost wonder if the thing with the blood isn't torture porn. We had talked about how well-written that scene is, and how much, like, in that moment, you're rooting for Rhapsody to do this thing. I almost wonder if that puts it over... Because Uh. it's framed as being a very good, positive thing in this very super well-written well-described scene of her explicitly undergoing pain and torture for years yeah i don't actually know the 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 pullback so it's not as graphic might save it from that maybe yeah so if if the scene that had all this like really triumphant detail had been the moments when she's actually being hurt, that would be torture porn. Okay, my that makes sense. Um, Because the really triumphant moment is her saying, I am going to take on this pain. Right. I think that s- steps it back down. 
But uh, if anyone reads this and thinks that it actually is torture porn, let us know. Yeah. I do think that that angle keeps it at severe, but it's definitely severe. Yeah. Um, along with the other instances of uh, boundaries. For integral, interchangeable, or irrelevant, the way the death happens, I think, is interchangeable. Yeah, it didn't have to be that. He just, like, yeah. the death did, the the actual, um, the actual uh, trauma did not. Yeah, the character needed to die, probably. Uh, also, in our notes, I just wrote the word death <laughs> instead of interchangeable, so I had to fix that. <laughs> so I'm um, doing real well on my I'm literally listening to you and didn't pay attention when I was typing <laughs> for the gaslighting is integral to the plot the amount of gaslighting that happens drives so many plot elements that while some of the particular events could have been interchangeable as a whole as a whole the it plot is would not integral have functioned the plot yeah without that yeah same Some with other boundaries. Plot the plot would have been super different if Rhapsody had had healthy boundaries on yeah, anything. If Rhapsody was like, no, I'm not doing that. Or if Rhapsody <laughs> just hadn't bothered to voice the idea half the time and they had just yeah. brainstormed something else. Like, the yeah, plot would have been super say, different. If she didn't say, hey, we could do this thing where the only person who gets hurt is me. Yeah. <laughs> over and over. Okay. For care, okay, <laughs> the death is, it's not treated with care. It is one of the most disturbing scenes in the entire book. The, the element that is some care taken on the author's part is that we don't have that description for a very long time. Yeah. Um, but it is... It was a lot. It was a lot to read. And if more of the book had been like that, I would have not liked the book. Yeah. Um, yeah, probably. Um, I just realized I, you know, because by the time this comes out, Nosferatu will be out. Um, if there had been more of this, it would have been kind of like Nosferatu. So, it's that comparison. Yeah. So, sorry, which... Did you think not enough or not? I think I I don't think this was treated with care. I feel like so this just was straight not up no. enough. Just no. Okay. This was not treated up with care. Like it was intentional. Yeah. But um it was very specific. It's meant to have that effect. It's meant to be shocking. But no, this was not treated with care. Yeah. Um the gaslighting, I think I think that this is one of those where you could argue it either way. You could either argue that I think kind of it might just be enough because even if even while certain characters are being gaslit, we as an audience have other characters either on screen in the moment or later that kind of think about it and go, you know what? That's not true. That doesn't make sense. There's no way. Like, when Rhapsody is dealing with the really big plot thing, insert spoiler here, uh, she has other people actively telling her, hey, that doesn't make sense. And so we as right. a reader, we kind of have 
even while a, a particular character is being lied to and it is affecting and warping their reality, we as an audience get the perspectives that give us the vantage point to kind of look at it and say, oh no, someone's lying to you. Like we yeah, get we, that. We get the counter programming. Yes. The one, the one thing where I would say, yeah, it definitely is enough and not straight up care. Yeah. Because the, for me, like the everybody's lying to everybody, like it is, it is a device that stretches me, stresses me out so much that I couldn't handle the moody movie Ratatouille. That is how much <laughs> oh I have never finished the film. I'm not going to because at this point I'm like, see example of how I can't handle this trope. But like, this stresses me out so much. Yeah, and. Part of the tension for the reader on purpose is this disconnect between how much you know and how much the character knows. Yeah. So I'll say enough, but if you're like me and people are lying to people, stresses you out, that's going to be a thing for like 500 pages not specifically <laughs> in the form of gaslighting but related to the gaslighting like it's an 800 page book where 500 pages have some major things where <laughs> the character is being lied to and we know about the lie and it's very stressful so keep that in mind i did like the book the conclusion is good it's the it, like it's handled really really well and that's the only thing that kept me from just stopping. But like, this is the series Nicole wanted to read. I love this read it, But it's not, I'm, I'm not the kind of person who would have just picked up and, and loved this book. And we mentioned in episode two that there was another bit there where I just would have stopped if it hadn't been that I could call Nicole and say, hey, is it going to be okay? Yeah. Because, yeah, these are stressful. Um, so... It's going to range between not enough and enough for the gaslighting and general dishonesty. For boundaries, I think boundaries, I think enough. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because there's, again, it's kind of a similar, there's enough context for the reader that we know why this is bad, but like without it it doesn't make us feel like it's happening to us yeah for the point of view of the trauma and the aftermath the point of view is of the death is mostly these these books are kind of like it's very omniscient third person yeah so it's a little floaty yeah but the it's perspective of third person <laughs> yeah oh yeah i just remember <laughs> Um, it's omniscient third person perspective and that means that it'll be Rhapsody thought rather than I thought mm -hmm. even when we're tracking Rhapsody's perspective. Can I make it rotates a around sure. Can I make a, a <laughs> this this goes directly against how we No, actually never mind. Just kidding. Okay, cool. It's a spoiler and I Great. I'm not gonna Submit it. Yeah, don't do that. Option. For for the death, this point of view is 
mostly the thoughts of the person killing them. Uh huh. We never really get a sympathetic uh, portrayal from the perspective of this person who dies. And at least part of that is because they are a villain. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really get any villain. We get very few Rakshas. villain POVs in this series. Yeah, in the previous book, we had the Rakshas point of view as a villain. But For here... For instance. Yeah. We also had Tristan a few times. I mean, He's an antagonist, not a villain, but like, still... Yeah, but but on on yeah. the whole, in general, this is not a book where we know what the villain is doing at any particular moment. Yeah, and whether you disagree with us on how many villains we get the perspective of depends <laughs> on how you feel about Lauron. <laughs> um, True. <laughs> yeah, but so, also, but also, for- if there is a protag in the scene, there are POV. We follow them. Yeah. So anyway, for this death, it is the perspective of the person doing the killing and not the person being killed. Yeah. Then for the gaslighting, there's so much gaslighting in all this. It's kind of whether it's the perspective of the person. Yeah. Whether it's the person being gaslit or the one doing it. Like, it's not not random. The the way it's done means that... Well, this is part of it being enough care, is that we get the perspective of the actual reality and sometimes the person who's being lied to and sometimes the person who's doing the lying and sometimes that one cutaway scene that gives us context as a reader. Like, it's literally everybody and it's intentional to kind of, I think, give the reader the ability to parse what is happening without being gaslit themselves. Uh, and then for boundaries, a lot of the time it's Rhapsody, but it's also sometimes a person who cares about her watching in horror as she doesn't care about her own boundaries or doesn't hold them. Yeah. Or, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say well, Rhapsody for... slash bystander. <laughs> yeah. Because that's so, it. Yeah. And usually that bystander is somebody who cares about her usually. and doesn't want her to be hurt. Yeah. Not always, but usually. Okay. For the aspiring writer tip, um, if you are, I, th- I'm, I have don't one. think we've had this as a tip before. Oh, you have one. Okay, I I do have one. For, I don't think we've talked about this in relation to gaslighting before, but one of the things that helps make it a good experience as a reader if you're going to have a character that gets gaslit and i apologize if this has been our our tip somewhere else before is that it's important to have other perspectives that i think we did i think we talked about this in Coraline, maybe no something i think we actually talked about it in our very first series i think we talked about so, at the very least, I'll reiterate that I okay. think it is important to have perspectives, since not everyone's going to hear every episode. Mm-hmm. It's important to have perspectives that are not the person being gaslit in a way that lets you know that that's what's happening. Like, I mean, if you're writing a psychological thriller, or psychological horror novel, and part of the point is to create that uncertainty in the reader, that's fine. That's a different genre. If you're not trying to do that, mm-hmm. then one of the ways to keep from turning your reader into a ball of nerves is to make sure that 
they get that sense of grounding by knowing when someone is being gaslit, either in the moment or like within a chapter or two afterwards, like something to let you know that this happened. Yeah. Like give your reader some perspective so that they're not like reality sideswiped at the end. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, can definitely. I can I add another one? Sure. Just because this series Absolutely. has a lot of this. We we kind of talk about in our review for all three of these books, kind of the deconstruction of some really common kind of. Uh, here's the thing with slight caveat. <laughs> I love tropes in fiction. I don't think tropes are cheats. I don't think tropes are cop are cop outs. I think tropes are just patterns that have been identified in common language that is the language of storytelling that if you put this trope in here, your readers know what you're talking about and you don't have to spend 500 pages explaining yourself. Mm-hmm. Tropes are great. Yes. Some tropes exist in most fiction, in a way that is incredibly harmful to the reader. It doesn't matter if this is a book, TV show, etc. There are some tropes in this series that have been deconstructed in a way that is very much a refutation of the, the way that they are used for harm, or used in a harmful way in a lot of fiction. And it's up to you whether you want to say, well, this just isn't the trope, or if you want to say this is a deconstruction of the trope, or if you want to say this is a commentary on the trope, it doesn't matter. What It doesn't really matter how you view it. You can view it however you want. But I just want to say that if, I think a good writing tip is if you are trying, is to, if you are aware of tropes that you are using in your writing, if there's, if they revolve around trauma as a plot point... It's very, very important to kind of do your research and handle them in a way that doesn't cause trauma to your audience. And this book, this series, does a very good job sometimes. <laughs> Most of the time, I would even, I would say. Every once in a while, though, it doesn't. Yeah. And, or or every once in a while, you kind of get, like, I guess, like, reader aftercare for the trauma. But it, you didn't have to put the reader through it. And this is not a story that couldn't exist without the reader going through it with you. Like, horror as a genre, if your reader doesn't go through it with you, it's not a horror. You can't really have a horror yeah. story exist if your reader isn't going through it with the characters. You can't really have a mystery story exist if your reader isn't going through it with your characters. Like, if your reader knows who the killer is on page one, your mystery novel doesn't work. <laughs> Like, that's part of why Jekyll and Hyde no longer works as a mystery novel. Because people know. Because it's yeah. been spoiled for the last hundred years. And that, that kind <laughs> yeah. of wrecks reading it now a little bit, if you know that. Yeah. So. But yeah, but like, this is not a genre. This is not a story. This is not a plot twist book in a way where any of the any of the traumas really require readers to experience the problem. And and there's a lot of instances of, like, them being handled incredibly well and with incredible care. And then there's other points, like our first topic for this episode, where, like, we didn't need the descriptions we got. Mm-hmm. There's other books that we've read. Actually, there's other books that we've released already that we absolutely needed those descriptions. Uh, if you kick, uh, look back to our, our series by N.K. Jemisin, those descriptions... Mm-hmm 
completely necessary. And a similar level of horror. And similar level of horror, yes. But this book, not not so much. Yeah, we could have done without it. Yeah. So, like, I don't hate that it's here, no. <laughs> but it made it feel like the most severe thing in the whole book. Yeah. So just, you know, I guess as a writer tip, just examine your your tropes that are based on trauma and harm. And that doesn't mean don't use them. It just means just be aware that them being an existing trope isn't good or bad, but that you, if you are trying to, to care about and for your audience, then you just need to kind of use trauma-based troops in a responsible way. <laughs> Let's just go yeah. with that. And this this is coming yeah. from somebody who this is one of my favorite. This this is actually a series of nine books. It's in sets of three trilogies. I love this series very, very much. But also, you know, there's there's moments in these series where this author absolutely could have could have taken more care for the reader. Yeah. Without diminishing the plot even at a little bit. Uh favorite, favorite... non traumatic thing about the book. Yes. I You go first, because I know what mine is. You go first, because I don't know what mine is. Oh, all right. That's fair. I love the framing device. I love the storyteller. I love the narrator so much. I think they're wonderful. Mm -hmm. I think the concept is wonderful. I love the imagery involved, and I love the... I, I love their identity. And I think it's just very cool. And I, I also love that... This is not really a spoiler, <laughs> Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to give super amount of details, but Robin, tell me if you think I need to edit that part out. Cool. Uh, I really love that this is technically a a an alternate history book, an alternate history series. Hmm. I feel we can leave that in because it establishes in book one that time is being edited, so I'm good with that. Yeah, like that's. I don't think it's a spoiler. It's very upfront, but it. But this is this is an alternate history book. This is like. This is literally the what if we did it differently series. With without but we by the never way, find out what they did it differently than. What? Without knowing oh, what yeah, they yeah, did yeah. it differently than. We have no clue what the original was. And I think that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have mine. Okay. Uh mine is how much more we really get to find out about Ahmed in this book. <laughs> I feel like it really settles in. Like, he gets enough space where he's not constantly around Rhapsody's reaction to him. And, um, he... There's a there's a lot more space for him to be just, like, doing things the way he'd do it if he didn't have to worry about Miss Chaotic Good over there. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, if he didn't have to hold himself accountable <laughs> to his partner. Yeah, and he's this, like, oh, goodness. really cool separate character. Like, he gets to fulfill, like, his own stuff. Um, And not that the previous two books didn't have any of that, but this is definitely, like, the culmination of, yeah, like, this personal arc in this really cool way. Yeah. And I... I will go I, ahead and I, say that Achman is my favorite character in this entire series. Hands yeah, down. I really 
I really do like Grunthor a lot. and I like, love Rhapsody's character Ahmed. design. And honestly, I might make a D&D character as close as I can to her with her powers at some point. But Ahmed's my favorite character. Yeah. Um, I just like... Uh, dang it, I like bad boys? Ah. Uh, anyway. Wait, so, are you calling like, Grunthor a bad boy? No, Ahmed. You're calling Ahmed a bad boy? How dare you? That's, raci- that's <laughs> racist, Robin. I don't think it is. No. It's fantasy. No. no, I'm just kidding. It's not. It's, it's not. not that was a joke. Racism. Okay. All right. I don't think I want it in there. Okay, write down the time. Uh, uh, Ahmed is, he's like broody and like has his own thing going on and he like knows how to work with other people. He just doesn't like like them very much. So he's not like yeah, he's not. I think this he's book super really relatable. Let yeah, it let me understand like oh, you're just kind of like a curmudgeon, and you're not. You don't hate people. You just don't no. always want to be like around them. <laughs> yeah, he he very much uh doesn't. He knows how he would rather not. <laughs> Yeah, which, like, in the first couple books, we definitely don't get... Well, we don't get as much of in book one. We do kind of get a bunch of it in book two. Uh, I think that's all I have. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. And if you're a patron, you'll get your epilogue next week. And for everyone else, we'll catch you in a fortnight. All music used in this podcast was created by Nicole as Heartbeat Art Co. and is used with permission. You can follow us on Twitter at Books That Burn, all one word. You can email us with questions, comments, or book recommendations at bookstheburn at yahoo.com. Support us on patreon.com slash books that burn. All patrons get access to our upcoming book list and receive a one-time shout out. You can leave us an iTunes review. This helps people to find the show. And find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for for listening. We'll be back in two weeks.